When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program. Hello and welcome to the latest edition of the Political Party Podcast. This one featuring the Shadow Foreign Secretary, Douglas Alexander. He's also the man in charge of Labour's general election strategy. So a fascinating uh, conversation and a very timely one indeed. Um, It's always interesting when you get guests based on their public persona who you think are going to be a certain way... And then they surprise you, whether it's, you know, for better or for worse. And it was certainly a pleasant surprise. I met Douglas properly for the first time at the end of last year. We were on Question Time together and he was really sound and really cool. Um, Very laid back, clearly very intelligent, but one of those people who has the good grace to carry it lightly. Um, And on the night, I thought, obviously given his position, given his position in the Labour Party and given how close we are to the election that he might be a bit more guarded and, um, rightly so, just a little more serious, but actually really laid back, really funny, really informal. And it reminded me very much of um, when I interviewed Jim Murphy last year during the referendum campaign, is that sometimes you just need to give politicians a bit of space and a bit of respect. And you can still tease them and have a laugh at them um, when you actually see them for real. So even though in this media age where political coverage feels so saturated, actually... My view of Douglas Alexander and Jim Murphy that I'd consumed largely through the media and as someone who's a political anorak was completely different in the end to how I ended up feeling about them having just spent an hour in their company. Um, So that's why I love doing this because even those of us that feel like we're absolutely embedded in politics are continually surprised and it's a wonderful thing to really get a sense of someone. And there's so so many great bits in this. He's very funny, uh, but there's there's a right at the end... Um, just a really good um, dividing line between, as he sets it out, Labour and the Tories. Whether you agree with it or not, it's succinct and it's very, uh, very effective. So enjoy it. He's great. And um, the next show is on Wednesday, March the 25th, with potential London Mayor David Lammy. He's one of the bookies' favourites to be the next London Mayor. Um, he was the youngest MP in the House of Commons when he got elected. Of course, he had the Tottenham riots in his constituency and has been very outspoken since about how society should deal with not just the perpetrators of it, but the culture that allowed it to happen. So he's a fascinating guy. Could well end up being one of the most powerful politicians in Europe. Um, he also quite famously, uh, turned down the chance of being in Miliband's shadow cabinet. So I'm sure we'll have some uh, interesting discussions about the current state of the Labour Party. Uh, There's guests still to be announced for April, May and June. All I can say is, for May and June, there are currently two guests penciled in that are exceptional. So I just hope that I can announce those soon. Um, but I'll hopefully see you at the David Lambie one. Tickets are available through the website, stjamestheatre.co.uk. See you on the other side. 
Hello, good evening. Hello, welcome to the show. Uh, I'm Matt Ford. Give me a cheer if you've been here before. Excellent, welcome back, regulars. Give me a cheer if this is your first time here. Excellent, welcome, newcomers. Uh, thought I'd take a quick opinion poll at the start of the night. Um, give me a cheer if you think you're going to vote Labour at the next election. Okay, give me a cheer if you think you're going to vote Conservative at the next election. <laughs> give me a cheer if you're going to vote Liberal Democrat at the next election. And give me a cheer if you think you're going to vote UKIP. Oh, bit of a shame, really, isn't it? It's nice on their ear. Uh, and give me a cheer if you think you're going to vote Green at the next election. Okay, just a few groans. Uh, not quite, it sounded like three, but it might be seven. I'll have to consult my figures. Uh, <laughs> notice I called it an opinion poll and not a straw poll. That would have cost me five grand. Uh, <laughs> what a week it has been. Uh, I mean, it just the, usually I sort of have a month's worth of stuff to get my teeth into to talk about in the first half. But just the last week, who, met, who watched uh, Meet the U Kippers on the BBC? That was amazing. No wonder none of them are allowed out anymore. This one not here. Uh, absolutely incredible. What, what, what was interesting about it, actually, because there's a lot of myths about UKIP. You know, they're not all racist. Uh, some of them are. Um, <laughs> but not all, you know, we have to be fair. Uh, the press officer in, in Thanet South, where Farage is standing, actually was, was quite a nice woman. You think, they've got a politically correct press officer working for UKIP. And she, she was, throughout the whole thing, just constantly going, I mean, I can't believe she said that. I, I can't believe she said that on camera. You're like, you're working for UKIP. You're like a veggie working at McDonald's. They keep delivering me. I mean, I've tried to have a word with them. They're selling it out there. It's doing my head in. There's a great bit that really highlights some of UKIP's, um, what would you call it? Just their, 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 their opportunism. Um, because obviously they'll just say, and a lot of parties do this to be fair, it's not just UKIP, but in certain areas they'll say certain things just to get elected. Now UKIP at the moment are campaigning on increasing NHS, state-based NHS funding, right, which is incredible. And in this particular constituency uh, in South Thanet, they're against the export of live animals, right? And there's a big animal rights community there, and this UKIP go, goes down there to address them. Now the problem is, UKIP are also massively in support of fox hunting. <laughs> so sort of on the one hand, he's like, I really care about these animals, unless they're foxes, in which case, fucking kill them <laughs> and he goes down there to this rally and the moment they say and the guys go like it's like this little sort of beardy guy with it it's a real shame when green campaigners look exactly how you expect them to look you think oh god don't you don't all have to wear bobble hats and beards surely there must be some people who support the green party that do just wear a suit and shave oh and wear and wear shiny shoes with it as well instead of weird trainers or fucking clogs <laughs> Just, you just think, oh, just don't do it, because I want to like the Greens. They're sort of on the left. You think they're not bad people, but they all look like members of the Green Party. And he goes down there in, like, his barber jacket, and the guy's going, now, our next speaker, you please just listen to him. Um, he's come all this way. Uh, he's the UKIP candidate. And then just all these people with megaphones spring out of nowhere. And one guy's so angry. You know, sometimes, like, lefties who go on marches, they never agree. There's been a history, the problem with the left throughout history. They can't just agree on one message. So it's like the chartist. Just that's the one thing, right? The guy just gets so angry, he just goes, uh, fracking! Uh, fox hunting! <laughs> Can't have it all. Just pick one thing. <laughs> and then this one guy just walks past with like a massive white beard, um, dark glasses and a big white tash and just looks at this UKIP guy and goes, idiot. <laughs> when you're getting heckled by Gandalf, mate, your politics are, fucking, are not doing well. Um... I mean, even since the start of the year, some of the stuff the Labour Party's been doing, Labour's pink bus. I don't know if any ladies in here have 
been lucky enough to... Uh, I'm not sure what women are meant to do it. They're meant to get in it. I mean, it's a bit of an... I thought... I was hoping when they unveiled the pink van that Ed Miliband was going to be driving it. <laughs> Hello, ladies. Get in the van. <laughs> Well, the announced Prescott was back. I was like, God, this is going to get dark. You lot, in the fucking van. <laughs> Just think, the f f firstly, the fact that it's pink is obviously really... For the Labour Party to have gone, hmm, we're going to make it for women. Should we do it pink? I think the girls would like that. It should be the most scrutinised van in history, isn't it? Everyone's going to be looking at that van going, but she can't fucking park it. <laughs> You're just inviting people. Typical. Typical bloody women drivers. She didn't even indicate at that roundabout. Even if it's a man driving it, that van is just doomed now for all eternity. It's at a supermarket. So Harriet Harman's there going, look, we're in a supermarket chatting to women and it just sounds patronising. She might as well go, and we've been to a few salons and we've been talking about the issues. Well, what are the issues, Kate? I'll tell you. Well, you know Dale, he DJs in town. Well, Kayla says she wants to go on holiday, uh, but he can't afford to go to Tenerife, but apparently he can afford to go to London with his friends. Yeah. Um, so, stuff like that. <laughs> It's got to be really careful. Um, I hope someone parks it on Emily Thornbury's drive and takes a photo of it. <laughs> this is what we're up against. The dispatchers as well, of course. I mean, the tragedy of seeing Jack Straw, friend of the show. Did anyone come down to the Jack Straw show, by the way? Yes. How did you feel seeing him on dispatchers? Pretty shocked. Yeah, it was quite sad, wasn't it? Sort of knowing a guy that sort of sat here and then seeing him... What I didn't like about it is the way it's filmed obviously makes it look dodgy. You could, you could film an innocent man in that way. If you just show a man on sort of grainy footage and talk over him, this is Jack Straw. He was MP for Blackburn since whenever it was, 1985, and served in four cabinet positions. No one's ever innocent after an intro like that. <laughs> we found that he did absolutely nothing wrong. Rifkin, though, what an interesting guy. Did everyone watch the dispatchers thing? The Rifkin thing's weird because it's the first time I've noticed Malcolm Rifkin does two voices in the same sentence. He's like Kelly Osborne because he's sort of posh, but he's also Scottish. So at the start of his sentences, he sounds very posh, and then at the end, the Scottish comes through. <laughs> think, oh my God, it's amazing listening to Rifkin. He's cool. He's uh, quite a tragic character, Rifkin. Uh, Straw, on the other hand, it's the bit where the bit that I find difficult to watch is when people talk about large amounts of money in a casual way. And there's a bit where Jack Straw's been lobbied for this thing, and he goes, um, we're talking about the day rate. Um, I mean, usually what sort of charges, you know, £5,000 a day rate. And he's like, you've just said you charge five grand a day, right? That is shitloads of money in anyone's book, isn't it? If they were asking me, and they said, we hear you charge about five grand a day, I'd go, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I said, yeah, have you got that sort of money? You have? Oh, God. <laughs> so how many days? Ten, so that's like... 50 grand? Oh, my God! God, we loaded. I could buy a car with that. Yeah, I'm supposed to be Labour. This is amazing. There is, like, a problem with it, isn't there? Apparently, um, some of the, what they did, they targeted dispatchers. Um, so if you haven't seen it, what they did, they targeted MPs with a fictional lobbying company and saw if they were prepared uh, to potentially lobby on behalf of this uh, group. George Galloway um, was apparently approached. Some of the highest-earning MPs they went to. Galloway is apparently the third-highest earning MP in Parliament, outside of Parliament. You just think, I bet they didn't fucking dare <laughs> go into his lair. But it got in there. Hello, George Galloway from Channel 4. I've been expecting you. <laughs> <laughs> the hunter becomes the hunted. <laughs> On my network of global satellites. <laughs> I've been following you since birth. 
Ed Miliband was asked, I don't know if anyone's seen any of the stand-up and recounted uh, series that they've done on uh, Sky News. It's where they get leaders, the three, part, three main party leaders, and they get asked questions by young people, some of which are good. But the problem is, because they're asked by young people, Sky have to pretend that they're all good questions. Some of them are dreadful. Um, <laughs> But Miliband got asked one, and the leaders have to say, like, they never treat the public with the disdain that they treat each other. I would just love to see David Cameron go, sorry, what was that? No, that's a dreadful question. Look, I, I really would say, look, if you're going to come here and ask questions, get a better education. Well, it's your fault. <laughs> Fuck off, whatever. Let's move on. Because <laughs> so the, the public are stupid sometimes. Politicians shouldn't have to suffer it. But one guy asked, uh, asked Miliband, he goes, uh, uh, Mr Miliband, uh, what jobs have you had uh, in the real world? <laughs> Uh, what, what jobs you had in the real world? He goes, I've had a lot of jobs in the real world. You know, I was an economic advisor at the Treasury. Uh, and I taught at Harvard. He wasn't joking either. He should have done that as a gag, right? It's like, mate, you can't... There's only so much you can break your life down. But he tries to sort of blag the Harvard thing. Be, you know, I, I, and I taught at Harvard, so I understand about, uh, you know, teaching... I was like, carry on, see how far you can go. And often I would, um, you know, buy the milk so I understand about commerce and pricing. And often I had to book Gordon's train ticket so I understand the engineering sector. Uh, you know, <laughs> the thing is, what he should have said, he should have made a defence of it and said, look, look, I know that my CV doesn't look like a lot of people's does, but if you're asking me, you know, what equips me for the real world, then I'm a son and I know what it's like to lose a father. I'm a father and I know what it's like to worry about the next generation of our children. And that would have been good, I think. Especially if he'd gone, and I'm a brother, and I know exactly what it feels like to fuck him over. <laughs> 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 really go for it. <laughs> uh, the Greens, this, oh my word, Natalie Bennett, who... I think a lot of people, even politically interested people, like, Natalie Bennett hasn't really been on people's radar until quite recently. And some of the stuff, I mean, the interview with... I don't know if you've heard the interview with LBC. She goes on LBC, interviewed by Nick Ferrari, which is ironic because it was an absolute car crash. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, should have probably in a, would have been in a Prius anyway, so it would have been fairly... Uh, <laughs> probably why she didn't hear it coming. It was... Uh, <laughs> Dreadful. I mean, there's a bit in it where he goes, so you're saying you're going to build 500,000 new homes. How would you fund this? She goes, <clears throat> uh, just bear with me. So we would, um, so the 500,000, we would, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, the 500,000, we would, what we're talking about is 7.5 billion. He goes, right, hang on a second. So how much are these homes going to, she goes, um, right, so we're talking about 60,000 pounds. He goes, what are they made out of? Plywood. <laughs> no, look, no, I mean, you'd be lucky to build a conservatory with that. He says, for hours. No, look, what we're talking about is, is five billion um, on top. <clears throat> and then she goes, silent. He goes, you don't know, do you? And she goes, no, well. Um, and you just think, there's various points in this. And then there's a bit where she can't get out anything. She goes, look, I mean, you, you can probably hear, uh, Nico, I've got a pretty bad cold. Um, it's like, I've known people throw a sickie, but never halfway through a shift. Actually, I don't feel very well, Nick. I'm going to have to go home. Sorry, mate. There's a bit in it where you can tell she's down the line. When she goes silent, you just think, hang up. Just hang up, please. Because obviously every fibre of her wanted to just go, fuck this. And just hang up. She should have then texted the show like an hour and a half later and gone, sorry, I was going through a tunnel. What do you got to talk? <laughs> Got a few texts here. One from Natalie Bennett saying, I'll ring you in three hours. I'm just on a train. 
awful, awful interview. Um, but some of the bits in it are... Well, you just think, if other politicians would have done that, they wouldn't get away with it. It's only because the Greens are, like, fairly cute and people sort of feel sorry for the Greens. Um, that we're like, oh, it's just the Greens. So, you know, we'll, we'll let them grow up a little bit and we'll let them make a few mistakes. You just think, if other leaders... I mean, Miliband, if he's going to use the cold excuse, he could use that all the time. <laughs> oh, we got suddenly pretty bugged up at the moment, Jeremy. Oh. <laughs> Uh, as you do. Uh, <laughs> and the phrase as well, sometimes like, I really... Like, I've been a big supporter of UKIP in terms of entertainment. I would never ever vote for them. And you just think it's good that people are going to the Greens, but the problem is people are going to the Greens and they don't know why. So now the Greens are going, shit, we've got to start coming out with something. <laughs> and that's all that's happened. They've gone, right, well, we're going to do a launch. And they did a launch this week, but couldn't announce any of their policies. They're like, yeah, we're doing a launch, um, but we can't tell you really what of. Uh, <laughs> So, just with the Green Party, so, hey. <laughs> but this isn't good if you can't answer the questions. Like, watching Nick, uh, Natalie Bennett being interviewed by Ferrari was like watching someone on 24 Hours in Police Custody on Channel 4. Uh, you are, are you not, Mrs Bennett, uh, in possession of some policies at the moment? Yes, we are, yeah. And uh, would you mind telling us what they are? You'll find out in good time. <laughs> Copper. <laughs> Just tell us now. You obviously haven't done your home. You can't say, oh, we're going to build 500,000 homes. But can you just give us a couple of months because you haven't done the maths yet? Um, that's not good politics, is it? It's, it's bad. But the, the phrases they use as well, some political phrases really great on me. Time for a change is one of them. Because it means absolutely nothing. Time for a change, isn't it? Well, I mean, I said that on a pub crawl. <laughs> We've had a couple in here. Time for a change, isn't it? Yeah, it's, it shouldn't apply to the NHS. <laughs> it's an empty slogan, right? The other one is hope over fear. And we saw it in the referendum campaign. This is about hope over fear. And the Greens have started saying it as well. This is a campaign about hope over fear. She says it while sounding terrified, by the way. <laughs> oh, that was the other thing she said. That was it. The citizen's income of 72 quid. I don't know if people have seen this. It's a flagship Green policy. Citizen's income of 72 quid. Every one of us, if the Greens get into Downing Street, um, <laughs> you just realise as the sentence goes on, it's probably not even worth explaining it. <laughs> Forget it, doesn't matter. Uh, they've got a citizen's income policy of 72 quid, and you just think, they can't explain how they're going to fund it. Like, in very basic terms, at least say, we're going to have to put up taxes. How much by? Roughly 72 quid. <laughs> Uh, ladies and gentlemen, uh, as always, you've been uh, a wonderful crowd in the first half. We have a very, very special guest in the second half, one that I'm... I mean, this is it. We're, we're, we're now, what, 70 days away from a general election. We're going to talk to the man who's running Labour's election campaign. He's the Shadow, Shadow Foreign Secretary, highly relevant man, very clever man, and a thoroughly decent man as well. Uh, so if you've got a question you'd like to ask, think about it, because I will be putting it to the audience in the second half. For now, I've been Matt Ford. Have a drink. I'll see you in a bit. Cheers. <laughs> Hello, 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 hello. Welcome to the second half, ladies and gentlemen. Well, uh, we've had some very uh, prestigious uh, guests down here, and this month is no, uh, no exception. We've had some wonderful guests from across the political spectrum. We've had Nigel Farage, George Galloway, Alistair Campbell, um, and we've had some uncontroversial people as well. Uh, and we've had some people... Um, it's, it, what's fascinating about these nights is you get people, month in, month out, and I deliberately try and do this, people not only from different parties, but at different stages of their career. We've had people like Stella Creasy and Luciana Berger and John Woodcock down here who are sort of young, budding MPs, very much at the start of their career. We've had people like Michael Portillo who are looking back on a very, uh, very prestigious 
his career. Uh, and tonight we have someone who's very, very near the top of their career, who's been around in politics for a long time, but is still very much fresh and still has a lot to achieve uh, in politics, I'm sure. He's the Shadow Foreign Secretary who's in charge of Labour's election campaign. Please give a massive, massive welcome to Mr Douglas Alexander. Douglas, um, well, thanks for agreeing to it, first of all. Thank you. Uh, for giving your, uh, what could have been parliamentary time, uh, and I will wire you the 3,000. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> perhaps uh, afterwards. I mean, it, it feels like a shame to start on that, because uh, I think actually, oddly, despite joking about it, Sean Rifkind have had, I don't know, not a, a raw deal, but they haven't broken the law. I mean, when you watch that and you see someone like Jack Straw on there, what did you feel watching it? Um, honestly, profound sadness. Um, partly because... They never offered I, you anything. I worked, <laughs> I worked for Jack for two years in 2004-05 and 2005-06. He was the best Secretary of State I worked for. Uh, he was a friend as well as a colleague. And to see the characterisation of a lifetime of service uh, dealt with in that way on television. I don't for a minute dispute it looked terrible. I don't for a minute dispute that it's done us all harm. Um, but sadness was the overriding sentiment. Do you get approached, because it's difficult to tell sometimes from the outside. I've worked for MPs before and I know they get a, like big mail bags and stuff like that and a lot of junk mail, but like, have you had people approach you in a similar vein and gone, oh, would you mind just doing a bit of... Honestly, no. No. I mean, I think they, I think they approached... People who had big outside earnings, I don't have any outside earnings. I think they approach people who they thought are at the final stages of their career. Um, so, no, I can't say, oh, lots of people approach me and I turn them down. They've never approached me. It must be difficult, though, like, because I sort of, oddly, like, with Rifkind and Straw, they're really likeable people. So I just thought, I'll let him have a couple of grand. You know, that's obviously, <laughs> that's a really bad thing to think. You think, he'll be out of here soon, just give him five grand a day, let him swan about. But obviously that's the, I mean, I'm obviously on the wrong side of the argument, but part of me thinks, we don't pay our MPs enough, and therefore mm. this is always going to be the case. I mean, do we have to pay MPs more, do you think? And would that help stop this? Listen, we're a really unequal society. MPs earn, what, £64,000 a year? That is a king's ransom to my constituents. In a previous generation, that gulf would not have been as evident and as immediate. And part of the problem in today's society is whatever MPs earn, they can be characterised as thieves and corrupt and everything else. And I, I, I still hold to the view that we've got to find a way of upholding the work that politicians do as being important. But when you see dispatches like that, it just reinforces kind of imprisoning cynicism that at best all politicians are self-seeking and at worst they're corrupt. And that's bad for, for everybody, it's bad for society, it's bad for politics. And it feeds a kind of hostility towards people involved in politics on all sides. So have you seen him around this week? Has he been in Parliament? Yeah, so he was in the division lobbies this evening. And like, are people hanging around with him? Like what? Um, well, division lobbies are pretty crowded, in that sense, of choice. Um, but no, I mean, of course people were speaking to him because Jack's been around for a long time. And in that sense, listen, I had a sister who had to resign as leader of the Scottish Labour Party a few years ago. Um, it matters how you conduct yourself, even if, if people's conduct has been judged to be found wanting. I always remember in Alistair Campbell, one of your previous guests, at Philip Gould's funeral, he said, whenever there was real trouble for me, when other people were walking out the door, Philip Gould walked in the door. 
And I think that's a pretty good maxim for friends in tough times. And you think people have been, even though they might disagree with what Jack Straw's done in this particular case, people have been broadly supportive of him? Listen, I think you can disagree with what somebody's done and not add to... Uh, honestly, I wouldn't wish my worst enemy to endure the kind of media firestorm that is now all too frequent in politics. I certainly wouldn't want somebody I've regarded as a friend going through it. And in that sense, the kind of politics of personal destruction that just says you've got to destroy your opponents, I think it's really bad for our public life. I think you can <coughs> genuinely and profoundly disagree with people and not be disagreeable to them. And, and that's one of the aspects of politics that I think we need to be careful to watch against because you look at something like the United States and it's absolutely a politics of personal destruction. That's great fun though, isn't it? <laughs> I mean, Maybe as a it. spectator, not as a participant. <laughs> no, no, no. It would be awful. But I just, I just wanted to like, with Jack Straw, so like, when you go through that, obviously Ed Miliband's got wind of it. He's mm -hmm. thought, I'm going to have to do something about this. I think Straw sort of effectively suspended himself or referred himself yeah. or whatever the detail was. Uh, and then now there'll be some sort of process. Um, yeah. Like... How difficult is that then for Ed Miliband to have to ring him up and go through that? Do you think he'd have sought advice beforehand on how to deal with it? Or would he just pick up the phone and... Yeah, I mean, listen, you, you, you may well ask for advice in those circumstances if you're the leader, but you know, it's not just Ed Miliband. I, Tony Blair hated reshuffles. You know, he absolutely hated reshuffles. And in that sense, whenever you were either being promoted or moved or anything else, he literally couldn't make eye contact with you. Um, and in that sense, it, it, it was one of the interesting characteristics about Tony Blair that he, he really disliked any kind of personal conflict. And in that sense, that's not <laughs> unique when you're picking up the phone to tell somebody that they're suspended or anything else. It's, it's one of those features of politicians you don't often appreciate, that sometimes their personal interactions are, are different from their public personas. So when you're dealing with Ed, because you're in charge of the election strategy now, um, what's he like to deal with one-to-one? Pretty calm, actually. The truth is, he, he did really well at Prime Minister's Questions uh, uh, this week. On any reckoning... The ultimate caveat. No. Very well this week. No, no. I, was, I was about to end the sentence, Matt. The truth is, if you looked at Twitter, as I'm afraid I did on the front bench at, like, 12.31, everybody said, best PMQ's performance in months. After that, Ed was the calmest person in the room. And if he's had a bad PMQ's, he's pretty much the calmest person in the room. And I think that's quite important in the sense that not all previous leaders of the Labour Party have been characterised by calmness. I think it would be fair to say. <laughs> Some that you may have worked for. Some I might have worked for for a number of years, yeah. Um, out, out of nowhere, so what was Gordon Brown like? Um, <laughs> <laughs> like yep. I promise this question. <laughs> yep. What was he like, like with PMQs? I mean, he looked like he didn't enjoy it at all. Um, well... I used to do development questions. I, I, I worked just across the road as development secretary for the three years that Gordon was prime minister. So once a month, I would be on the front bench at the dispatch box immediately before prime minister's questions. So he would arrive at 12 noon as I was winding up the 45 minutes of different questions. So once every four weeks, most of my concentration in Prime Minister's questions was on not being sat on by Gordon Brown <laughs> because I was physically right next to him and he's quite a large, imposing man. So basically, rather than actually listening to the Prime Minister's answers, I would be trying to move because I thought it would be a bit of a sketch writer's dream if a vast Prime Ministerial posterior ended on top of and probably ended the development sector. So I wasn't always concentrating on what he said. I was just trying to duck and dive. Um, how would you find, like, it must be a bit of an odd slot, the warm-up slot for PMQs, because you probably start with a, a, a chamber that's largely empty, and then in the last ten minutes, people are just sort of rushing in. The concentration required must be immense. 
uh, it is the only other equivalent experience, this terrible name dropping, the only other equivalent experience was the Labour Party conference where Bill Clinton came to address the Labour Party conference. I was speaking immediately before Bill Clinton. So I had the, the only thing worse would have been speaking after Bill Clinton, but I had the curious <laughs> phenomenon of the whole filling up as I was speaking, because that's not my normal experience at Labour Party conference. <laughs> <laughs> the other story is, you know how Bill Clinton is supposed to be the most cosmically charming man, like when you're talking to him, his eyes lock on, you think you're the most important person in the world? I have to say that was not my experience that day, okay? So I am behind the set when I'm walking onto the stage and Tony Blair and Bill Clinton are walking towards me. And Tony says, um, Bill, can I introduce my transportation secretary, because I was transport secretary at the time, Dr. Alexander, to which Bill Clinton says, are you old enough to ride on the buses on your own? <laughs> and I thought, I thought you're, you're like supposed to be the most charming man in the world. So, buoyed by that morale-boosting cheer, I went onto the stage and spoke, and then he came on and spoke after me. So I was like, thanks, Bill. So you're, you've often been, I suppose, you know, I've never thought about this, but you're like a sort of support act to like big, it's <laughs> like, sort of like a political hard fight, sort of <laughs> supporting, Not so much. It's sort of supporting these sort of big moments in history. But you've, you've obviously, with Brown at Prime Minister's Question Time, mm -hmm. been sat there, it must still be a thrill, even for someone who's in a politically elevated position like yourself, there must be a certain thrill to being right next to the Prime Minister during a period like that. Uh, yeah, listen, Prime Minister's Questions is is a very strange phenomenon. I mean, I was, as it happens, late for Prime Minister's questions the week that James Purnell resigned. And so we were both just standing behind the Speaker's chair. And I turned to him at one particularly ghastly moment of Prime Minister's questions, and I said, I absolutely loathe this place during Prime Minister's questions. And James, in a very kind of heartfelt way, said, yes, so did I. And like three days later, resigned and said, I've just had enough. That in that sense, I think, one of the challenges during Prime Minister's questions is to keep a sense of what people outside the chamber think of it. And most of the time, people are utterly contemptuous of it. So you need that sense of detachment because it's, it's a very, very strange place. Yeah, but it's great to um, Honestly, I, I think it's an unbelievably bad advert for politics. Oh, don't, please don't change it. Because the you problem is with it is the rest of people's question time. <laughs> but the problem is, is that everyone says, oh, uh, this is what annoys me about young people on Sky News, is when they say, oh, um, Parliament's question time is such a bad advert. Why don't politicians make maturity? You're like, if you watch the Parliament channel, and I do, the rest of the time it is fairly steady, arguably tedious political debate. <laughs> this is the one hard-on yeah. we get all week. <laughs> this is the fucking adult channel free view for political people. <laughs> Don't you take away this but titillation, man. What was interesting this week was actually there was a genuine exchange in the sense that Cameron, because he had nothing to say on second jobs, Ed goes in in question one and says, um, will you vote with us this evening to ban second jobs in light of everything that's happened this week? And Cameron clearly has decided he can't say anything. He's asked about consultancies and paid directorships and said, I can't support your motion because it would still allow uh, paid trade union officials to be members of parliament. Now, as Nick Robinson said, like 20 minutes later on the BBC, there isn't a single paid trade union official who is a member of parliament, but that was obviously the best that Cameron had come up with. And to Ed's credit, he said, okay, we'll put in a manuscript amendment this afternoon and we'll deal with that issue. I don't want paid trade unions in the Commons. Will you support me on directorships and consultancy? Excellent. And that was a genuine exchange. And actually, 
he just repeated the same question effectively for the next five questions because Cameron became ever, you can always tell Cameron doesn't know what to say when he starts talking about the trade unions and in that sense we actually learned something today frankly that is not always the case in terms of Prime Minister's questions do you ever heckle? yeah so yeah. Are, there, are there particular individuals you like to heckle or is it just sort of when the moment strikes? Uh, no, listen, I, there's, there's not particular individuals. Um, and also because I have to be on the front bench and I tend to sit next to Ed Bowles, most people don't hear my heckler. <laughs> you know, a kind of silent heckler. Um, Ed has one at the moment about the fact that um, David Cameron didn't study economics as part of PPE. So he says, you know, did you not do any economics as part of your PPE degree? Now, why do people think politicians are out of touch with Oxbridge graduates? Like, I am not either a PPE or an Oxbridge graduate, but there's this like, whole thing about which college did you go to and did you study economics? And, what? and you can just see Cameron getting redder and redder and redder and redder. And in that sense, there was this whole thing today, because it was Ed Balls' birthday, where Cameron was like congratulating Ed Balls and says, you give me a birthday present every week. But it was like... <laughs> Totally, is totally visceral between them because as far as Ed Bowles is concerned if he can wind up Cameron you see the flashman and that's bad for Cameron and good for Labour they do seem to particularly it's odd when you see these relationships develop through Parliament so uh, Blair apparently always got on quite well with Michael Howard until Howard called him a liar in the run up to 2005 um, <laughs> yeah I don't think that was so good <laughs> I think that sort of led some frost relations yeah. Gordon Brown and uh, Osborne, there was certainly on Gordon Brown's side, it seemed genuine loathing and towards Cameron. And then this Cameron Balls thing where it's odd that yeah. they both really get to each other. So does Ed Balls get wound up by Cameron, do you think, as much as Cameron gets wound up by him? Um, it's hard to tell, but probably. <laughs> yeah. I mean, in the sense that it is, it is visceral every week. Um, and yeah, I, 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 it's, it started fairly early on. And, and it, it just and and they now both react to it in the sense that Cameron had no reason today to kind of make a big thing of about it being Ed Bowles' birthday, but he was absolutely determined to. Do they ever bump? They must bump into each other in the corridors sometimes, and because they're both quite, I don't know, is Ed Bowles an alpha male? Is, is Cameron? They both want to be alpha males. I get the sense they're both sort of quite bombastic individuals. Yeah, I mean, I think Cameron has an extraordinary sense of entitlement. Like, I think the most revealing answer that Cameron has ever given was when he was asked as leader of the opposition, why do you want to be the Prime Minister? And he said, because I think he'd be good at it. You know, I mean, that, that tells its own story, that he genuinely believes somebody of his background, somebody with his training, really, a chap like him should be Prime Minister. And I think Ed and others are just, they're just not willing to accept that. Whereas if Gordon was asked, he'd probably said, I probably won't be very good at it. But, um, <laughs> I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll be there for a few years. Uh, I mean, I that must have been... I think that is a genuine difference. I think when, when we get to Downing Street, I remember the first time I crossed the threshold of Downing Street, there is a sense that we rent it when we are there as the Labour Party, and there is a sense that they own it. They think they've got a freehold on it because they're Tories. And in that sense, that sense of entitlement is real. And I don't mean that in a cheap or partisan, it's just a difference. They genuinely think they've got the right to run the country. But don't like all politicians think, certainly party leaders, they'll be good at it, otherwise they wouldn't be standing for a general election. You know, Ed Miliband must deep down think that he'd be good at it. Blair probably... Yeah, listen, you don't, you don't get there without a driving sense of ambition. Of course you do. But I think politicians are divided into those people who want to be there, which is the category I would put Cameron in, and who want to do things. And I think there are, that's, that's quite a good divide in, in, in politics. And does that split ideologically, do you think? 
Not exclusively, although I would argue that most of the... Not, not exclusively. I'm sure there are some Labour politicians who... I mean, I, I, I always remember Pat McFadden once said to me that whenever somebody says, I'm a parliamentarian, they've completely lost it. <laughs> you know, that, that in that sense, it, it, it's, it's not for me about being part of the club. It's, it's a workshop. It's a place you get things done. Um, looking ahead to the election then, because we're only about 70 days away now, I think, or something yeah. like that. Um, That's not news. <laughs> you're... Um, you're in charge, effectively, of the strategy of Labour's campaign. Is it all now, at this point, sort of mapped out broadly? You've got a campaign grid, you know what things are going to be, and it's just a matter of doing these things on the day. I wish. Oh, I wish. I wish. Um, basically, I'd, one of the reasons I'm doing this job is in 2001, when Peter Manison had resigned in 2000, I, I was asked by Tony to um, coordinate the election then. And on one particular, people forget these events happened on the same day. We plotted our grid every day what was going to happen. On a single day, we launched our manifesto in Birmingham in the morning. I had taken the responsibility to send the cabinet to Birmingham on the same train. So I had not slept a wink the night before, convinced that the train was going to be derailed or late or you just write the headlines. So anyway, rather sleepless night, get to Birmingham. Um, Alistair, who you've had as a guest here, does the briefing in terms of uh, health service reform. We think we're doing okay. I then got on a train back to Millbank and arrived to pictures of Sharon Storer um, in Tony Blair's face on the steps of the Queen Elizabeth. But hospital. you don't care, do you? Exactly. Because you're not sorting it so, out. That's that's <laughs> first. It's a really bad Tony Blair. First, of, first, <laughs> first event that wasn't the grid. At about three o'clock in the afternoon, Jack Straw, who we've been talking about, is slow hand clapped as the Home Secretary at the Police Federation conference. And at about six o'clock in the evening, I'm sitting in a meeting with Margaret McDonough, who's then the General Secretary, with uh, Gordon Brown, myself, and Sally Dobson, Frank Dobson's daughter, brings in a note and hands it to me, and I open it up, and it says, John Prescott has just punched a member of the public. <laughs> at, at, and it's running on Sky. <laughs> so at that point, we decide to stop the meeting. <laughs> And Charlie Faulkner, who was probably the best paid lawyer in the Labour Party, and I, who had been a solicitor and are probably the worst paid lawyer in the Labour Party, find ourselves having a legal consultation in front of the television screen, <laughs> deciding whether a criminal offence has happened and what's going to happen to John Prescott. And so that conversation kind of rolled on all night. Um, the next morning, we had Tony and Gordon together in a press conference in Millbank at 8am. We still had press conference at 8am at that morning. And with the kind of brilliance of how to defuse a situation, that was when Tony said, listen, John's John. And the whole situation just kind of... Fl- but, but none of those events were in our grid. So, you know, you... you <laughs> it would have been amazing you, if they you, were. You, exactly. <laughs> yeah, you plan and the gods laugh. You know, I was with Gordon on the day of the... Um, Mrs. Duffy incident in the last election because I was helping prepare him for the yeah, debate. Don't forget to turn that off at the end of the interview. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Microphone, what could possibly go wrong? Um, and in that sense, it, listen, every election involves events that are, are not on anybody's grid. So that day with Gordon, I mean... It wasn't good. <laughs> that wasn't going to be my question. <laughs> no, it was not good. Did you go into the house with it? Uh, no. Actually, uh, he didn't go into the house. What happened, The sequence was we were... <laughs> we were travelling that morning. Um, Gordon, for some reason, decided he wanted to go for a jog in his suit that morning. <laughs> I, I have no explanation for that. But basically, we're driving along to the like, ministerial motorcade and everything else, and he's out and we want to go run. So out he gets and kind of goes for a run in his suit <laughs> by, the, by, by the side of the road. <laughs> he wanted some exercise. And then kind of gets back and it was just... 
one of the stranger moments. Anyway, I'll tell you another stranger moment. Anyway. <laughs> Gets back in the car and goes off to do whatever meetings he's doing. He was going to Blackburn or something and then Rochdale. And I was sitting in an eat uh, uh, cafe in Manchester with Alistair Campbell. And we both had blackberries sitting on the table. And at a certain point, both our blackberries just lifted off the table. <laughs> and again, it was one of those kind of John Prescott's punched a member of the butt. You're kind of like, what? What? Um, and so then we had to go back to the hotel where Gordon had returned after doing that Jeremy Vine interview, oh. where the head went down into the hands. And uh, in that sense, that was not an easy few hours afterwards, as you can imagine, because he was fully aware of what had just happened. Um, and one of the things that was done was um, Sarah came up from London. And actually, Sarah came and met him in Manchester. And he met her at Manchester Piccadilly, our view being, Gordon, you need to be back out and meeting people. Um, and actually, most people at about 3 o'clock or 4 o'clock that afternoon had not yet seen the television news. They were just going about their lives in Piccadilly Station. And so Gordon and Sarah did a kind of walkthrough of Piccadilly. And at the same time, Rachel Kinnikin, who works for Aid, had already gone back and said to Mrs Duffy, listen, can, we, um, can Gordon speak to you because he wanted to apologise personally? But by the time Rachel arrived in the house, there were television crews inside the living room. I mean, in that sense, Mrs. Duffy's life had already been kind of um, absorbed in terms of everything that was happening. So it was, uh, it was a day that I won't forget. <laughs> but, but the other story, just to give you a, a flavour of the 2010 campaign, the other story that I remember from around the same time was we had a candidate, I think, in northeast Northshire, who I had never previously heard of or met who took it upon himself to declare Gordon Brown the worst prime minister in 200 years. This is like an endorsed Labour candidate <laughs> saying this in the middle of the election. So I was dispatched it was Charles from... Charles Clark. I, I, was, I was dispatched from our, our headquarters of Victoria Street as the kind of human sacrifice for the daily politics. So I was told it was a two-way with Andrew Neil, where I would explain why the Labour candidate had misspoken when he described Gordon Brown as the worst prime minister in 200 years. <laughs> So anyway, it turns out that they had arranged a live video link-up with the candidate. So at this point, I am now debating the Labour candidate as to whether Gordon Brown is the worst Prime Minister in 200 years, which again was not on our grid, incidentally. So I returned back to Victoria Street, and I was <laughs> sitting next in the war room next to Peter Mandelson, and I said, I said, Peter, I said, you know, what, what else could I say? We're, we're, we're debating with the Labour candidate about whether Gordon's the worst Prime Minister in 200 years. This is not what we were planning. And in a very Peter-like way, he said, Douglas, he said, we're fighting this campaign on a number of different levels. <laughs> Some of them are so deep that even we don't understand. <laughs> 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 Will you have to go through an interview like that then? Because um, I've tried to, I've tried to think of times where you've sort of made gaffes in interviews. I can't think of any. You're a highly reliable uh, performer, but when you hear like Natalie Bennett this week just yeah. implode, do you, I mean, part of you must enjoy it. Does Does any part of you feel sorry for her? Does any part of you think, God, that reminds me of the time I went through that? Um, Alistair Campbell actually gave me advice. He said, if you are, be and it was after that Sharon Storer incident. He said, if you're getting an incredibly tough time as a politician from a member of the public, actually, not from an interviewer, if you maintain a demeanour that is courteous, polite, relaxed, then most of the time the viewing public will feel sympathy for the politician rather than the person who's in the politician's face. And so we've once done Question Time together. On a previous occasion, I also did the programme with David Starkey. 
Um, and I think he called me a New Labour twerp, if I <laughs> recollect properly. But I, I thought of those words of Alistair Campbell as he was like absolutely going for me. Because David Starkey's now kind of imprisoned by his own brand, which is I'm the rudest man on British television. So every time I go on, I have to be the rudest man on British television. And in that sense, I just thought, listen, you can't change what he's saying about you. You can conduct yourself. And similarly, like when you do interviews with Paxman on Newsnight, most of the time, if you do an interview with Paxman, and you are fairly relaxed and open at the end of it, your mates after all say, you did really well on Newsnight. It was great. And I'll say, what, what, did I, what was I talking about? I don't know. <laughs> I, I, and in that sense, television is largely visual. And in that sense, it's remarkable how much people make judgments about politicians, not actually on the basis of your argument or what you say, but the kind of body language and the, the engagement. People have said this, particularly about former presidential debates uh, in America. That's, mm. that's, that's often the sort of received wisdom about that. But have you ever been in a position where you've been in an interview and just thought, I haven't got a fucking clue <laughs> what he's asking me about. I can't remember the figures, and you've had to sort of blag a bit. Yeah. <laughs> but, but I'm not telling you where. <laughs> Have you ever had any, like, close shaves where you thought, oh, my God, I can't believe he's taken that? Uh, yeah. <laughs> also, we, in the Foreign Office, I, I say I've worked with Jack in the Foreign Office for two years, um, you used to have outgoing interviews with ambassadors who were going abroad. And... Um, I, on one occasion, the ambassador who was about to be dispatched came in, and uh, I was handed the file, but I realised I'd been given the wrong file. So I conducted the entire interview on the basis of having no idea where this man was going to go. <laughs> so I said, so, what are the internal challenges that you think are going to be the biggest challenge? And, um, you know, power domestic politics and things. And I came out and I said, you know, where was he going? And it was Vilnius or somewhere, but, but that was one of those situations where I think, I hope he had no idea that the Europe minister didn't know whether he was going to Vilnius or Valletta. So in that sense, yeah, you, you do your best to cover your tracks. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Because there are some... I, I mean, I've noticed this about... Ed Miliband, that he's very good at... He's developed a new technique of... The other one, instantly is about oh. three interviewers in ten say, well, if I can just ask you a question, Danny. Yeah. And you're left thinking, OK, do I say, actually, it's Douglas, not Danny? <laughs> do, they, do you let it go? Do they do that on purpose? Uh, I had one yesterday, I think, probably did it on purpose, yeah. Who was that? Uh, ITV, I did it over in Church House. I'm oh, OK, can't remember his name. <laughs> <laughs> Couldn't remember mine. Um, do you think they do that just to... Like, prickle you a bit, and therefore you're going to react a little bit more? Um, it depends. Different interviewers have different techniques. There is absolutely no doubt that some people go for the kind of short, sharp question to start with, just to knock you off balance. Uh, but 
goes with the territory. Because there's a lot of people are very cynical now, aren't they, about media training and professional politicians. But if you're not media trained, you, Natalie Bennett happens. You know, that, but that's the but that's the truth of it, isn't it? And the public say, "Oh, we don't want media trained politicians," but they're not media trained. We say, "Well, they're not professional." We can't. You know, the public can't have it both yeah. ways. I mean, how much training do like? For instance, senior politicians of your rank have, like, do you often have media training or anything like that? No, it's probably very obvious. Um, <laughs> no, the truth is, it, it's partly you, you do your own preparation. I mean, I was just thinking, when you said media training, John Reid, I always thought, was a very talented communicator, whatever people thought about his politics. He, he taught me that very often a television interview, there's an implicit battle as to who controls the interview. Because a really skillful politician is able to, Tony was very good at this as well, if you like lever up and be able to say what's, what's that question actually about yeah, yeah. in a way that doesn't have you throwing things at the television. And, and implicitly when you watch John Reid up against Paxman, it was a battle for who controlled the interview. Yeah, yeah. And in that sense, it was almost physical that John Reid was saying, no, I'm gonna set the terms of this engagement and Paxman was determined to do the opposite. Um, and that's partly because John Reid worked incredibly hard at his communications. I, I mentioned I was Transport Secretary. The weekend I was appointed Transport Secretary, I was appointed on the Thursday evening. And everybody who says, incidentally, the work of government continues during reshuffles, rubbish. <laughs> okay? It's just not true. Everybody is watching Sky to find out what their job is. So anyway, I was in the Foreign Office at that point, and they were kind of going through the Cabinet. And Des Brown, who's a very good friend of mine, who was Chief Secretary of the Treasury, was on the phone to me and he said, have you heard anything? I like, oh, haven't heard anything, have you heard anything? And uh, we both knew, because we'd been told to stay in London, that we were being promoted to the Cabinet. And Des says, what's left? What's left? And he said, he said listen, there's only transport and defence left. He said, one of, or in fact, both of us is going to be in charge of thousands of men. It's just one of them is going to be a bunch of clippies. <laughs> so anyway, we then, we then, we then, we then get invited into the dining room, and we were given appointed times that we were there, and we were put in the dining room in, in the dining room. There was a big wooden door, and I knew Des was on the other side of the door. I said, have you heard? Have you heard anything? I said, no, I haven't heard anything. I haven't heard anything. So anyway, that was the weekend we were appointed. On the Saturday afternoon, I'd stayed in London that weekend with like 17 ring binders trying to understand transport policy because I'd just been appointed transport secretary. And at about 3 o'clock in the afternoon, I hit a psychological wall when I realised I did not know the distinction between near cash and non-cash in the government accounts. And I'd kind of encountered this. I thought, oh my God, what, what is the difference between near cash and non-cash? So what do you do? You phone a friend. So I phoned Des Brown, who'd just been the Chief Secretary of the Treasury. And I said, listen, Des, you've got to help me. I said, I'm going into the Transport Department tomorrow. I don't know the difference between near cash and non-cash. What is the difference? So Des goes into this long description of what near cash is, and then says, oh, fuck, no, that's non-cash. <laughs> Which was, which, which was not altogether reassuring. But anyway, he then says, he says, he says, are you online at the moment? I said, yes. He says, go to the BBC website, go to the cabinet profiles. And like the BBC had done this profile of all the new members of the cabinet. And the reason I tell this story is there was a video clip of John Reid, who'd been appointed the Home Secretary on the Friday morning, arriving at the Home Office for the first time. And if you want to understand why John Reid was such a gifted communicator, watch that clip. Because basically, he steps out of the car, he's just been the Defence Secretary, steps out of the car, and there's a battery of cameras in Merton Street, the Home Office. He pulls himself up and he says, um, he says, uh, good morning, there's only three things that I want to say today. Firstly, I've just left the Ministry of Defence, 
where I've had the privilege of working with the men and women of the British Armed Forces. They are quite simply the best of British. He said, secondly, he said, it is customary for me to answer your questions, but on this occasion, you'll understand that I'm not going to take your questions because I believe it's important to have the facts before I offer the answers. And he said, the third thing I want to say is I know that when I cross the threshold of the Home Office, I will face a department facing considerable challenges. So I give you only the undertaking I have given on receiving every previous ministerial challenge, which is that I will do my best. And then turns around and goes in. Now, it was brilliant because on one level, it was a brutal and effective assertion of personal authority. But on the other hand, it didn't say anything. You know, he, wasn't, he wasn't saying near cash or non-cash. This is how many people have come into the country or how many criminals there are. But, but he clearly had worked out in advance, this is about an assertion of personal authority in arriving in the department. This is highly skilled. So, so I did the same in transport on the Monday morning. <laughs> oh, by the way, I should have said on Friday. Yeah. <laughs> I think every politician develops like their own little tricks. So Farage has clearly got his sort of way of dealing with things, which is to sound absolutely... Look, I take it very seriously indeed. To apologise to those concerned, but frankly, to move on. Mm-hmm. And that sort of works for him. Miliband, I'm sure... And I'm sure I'm right to say this. He's developed a trick where he gets asked a question and he will answer a question, just maybe not the one he's been asked. Um, and he's, but he's really good at doing this. So like, people will say, um, but you don't have a long-term plan um, for, um, for interest rates, do you, Mr Miliband? You go, look, if you're asking me, do I care about Britain's economy, then the answer's yes. You're like, <laughs> wow, this is... He's re- but he's really good at it. And you just think, is that, is that something that he's sort of developed himself? Do you have, a, do you have like, a little... Do you have, like, little tricks that you use? Um, little phrases that get you out of trouble? Say three things. Firstly, um, firstly, one of the things that fascinates me about Farage is actually he he breaks one of the rules that people think applies to politicians, which is they never apologise and say they've changed their mind. Mm. So when you push him on, why did you give you know this speech in which you say you want an American healthcare style system? He is so abject in saying I've changed my mind. There was a debate within the party that to quite a lot of people that's disarming because he doesn't dissemble, he just says, I got it wrong. Now, the truth is, he does still believe that. That's what he says. You can all watch the video clip on The Guardian, etc., etc. But he gets away with a lot by appearing to turn 180 degrees, not to turn 50 or 60 degrees. And I think, actually, that's, that's quite a powerful insight for all politicians that you don't, don't have to tell the story, tell the whole story. One of the things that Clinton always said was, be categoric and then qualify. If you start qualifying, then actually people lose you. If you say, do you, do you believe in a universal healthcare system? Yes, and let me tell you why. Mm. If you say, well, let me tell you why I believe you've lost yeah. the audience. So in that sense, that's important. I think the other thing, though, is to come back to, to Blair. Listen, Tony Blair and Gordon Brown were both unbelievably disciplined politicians, partly because Labour was in such difficulty when Gordon became the shadow chancellor. He almost felt a, a personal obligation to own and to build the credibility of the Labour Party on economic policy. And in that sense, that meant that he kind of self-edited every clause coming out of his mouth in all of those interviews about income tax or anything else. But that made the style very stilted and, mm. and, and considered. Part of Tony's genius was he was just as disciplined as Gordon Brown, but you didn't throw things at the radio when you heard them. And actually, that's part of the craft of a politician, which is to continue to communicate the message that you want to do, but in a way that doesn't get your back up. Now, in that sense, politicians obviously 
try and buy time and thinking what they're going to see. They'll have tons of free. Well, you just brought about five minutes going on about Blair. I didn't exactly. even mention it. Yeah. <laughs> and in that sense, listen, you know, Ed has his own strategies like all of us do. So what, like, do you have any like, little ones that you think... Um, are the ones where you say, firstly, Jeremy, um, you know, thanks for asking that question. I think it's really important. Do you ever like buy time like that or take a sip of water, for instance, or something? <laughs> <laughs> um, that. Um, the questions you fear are the really short questions because if you get a longer question, then you tend to have time to develop your argument. If it's just in out straight, then actually it's it's much more staccato from the interviewer and from the politician as well. So someone says, "Is Ed Miliband going to win the next election?" Yes. Do you think he's a good Labour Party leader? Yes. Did you vote for him as leader? No. Why? Uh, because I voted for the other guy. <laughs> <laughs> but you worked on David's campaign. Did, has that affected your relationship with Ed at all? It doesn't seem like it has from the outside. Uh, no, listen, they were both friends. I, I, it's a bit of history. I joined the Labour Party in 1982. Which That's was, incredible. It was an unbelievably dumb time to join the Labour Party. <laughs> <laughs> um, so my formative experiences were of brutal and repeated defeats. It wasn't of kind of triumph and really success. Full it was like 83, 87, 92. <laughs> time will tell. Time will tell. Um, but in that sense, I had met David Miliband before I'd met either Gordon Brown or Tony Blair. Uh, I, uh, he came on holiday with our family in 1988. The full, that, year, that academic year, David was at MIT, I was at the University of Pennsylvania, and, and that kind of started our friendship. I met Ed, I think, a couple of years later in David's house. Um, he'd just come down from Oxford. Um, so in that sense, they, they genuinely have been friends of mine for 20 years. Now, deciding to run for leadership was clearly painful for them, painful for the family, but it wasn't easy for their friends either. Um, but are there ever any times where like, you sit there with Ed, I don't know how often you've seen, but do you ever sit there maybe like, over a whiskey at night and you go, oh, Douglas, will you just tell me? <laughs> no. Why? Why did you betray me when I needed you? Uh, not so far. Um, I bet you think my brother would be better at it. Um, okay, look, I'll, I'll tell you the truth. Um, Ed asked me to work in his leadership campaign. David asked me to work in his. I made a judgment and uh, supported David. Um, naturally, during the summer of 2010, we didn't talk that much, not because we were sulking or falling out or anything else, but just it was awkward in the sense that he was running for leadership and I was working for David. Um, the leadership ballot closed on, if I recollect, the Thursday, either the Thursday or the Friday afternoon. The result was announced in Manchester on the Sunday afternoon. I was putting my daughter to bed on the Thursday evening. The ballot has closed and my mobile goes off and it's aid. And I say, listen, I'm just putting Eid to bed. Can I call you back in five minutes? He says, absolutely no problem phoned him back in five minutes, and at that point he didn't know whether David was leader of the Labour Party or Ed was going to be leader of the Labour Party, oh. because we didn't have the result until the Sunday afternoon, and his first words were, where were we before the leadership contest got in the way? Now, in that sense, oh. that speaks to a, a generosity of spirit on Ed's part, and genuinely, he didn't know at that point whether David was going to win or Ed was going to win, and one of the reasons he is the leader of the Labour Party is actually his skill in those relationships, and in that sense, that helps explain the votes that he got. And it, 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 that, that was a point at which it would have been perfectly easy for him to say, listen, you know, you made your choice. But even before he got the result, that wasn't the case. On the day of the result, um, I was obviously with David. We went to a restaurant after the um, result was announced. It was a result four o'clock in the afternoon or something. All of David's team went to an Indian restaurant. And I took my jacket off and uh, I put it around the back of the chair. And we finished in the restaurant at about 11 o'clock, put my jacket back on. 
put my hand in my pocket and realise that my Blackberry has been buzzing all evening. And this is the new leader of the Labour Party saying, can you come to see me? That was not a good career move, having <laughs> taken my jacket off, it has to be said. But I went and saw um, Ed at about 11 o'clock or midnight that evening. Um, in that sense, listen, it's, it's to Ed's credit rather than mine, but in that sense, I think it speaks well of him. God, yeah, I mean, it's, it, it reflects very well on him. I mean, if I'd sort of for the leadership and one of my mates had worked for my brother, <laughs> I'd ring him up and go, oh, hi, uh, he must the be leader of the Labour Party. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, didn't do that. <laughs> yeah. Douglas, I just want to say, ha! <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And just hang up. And that's so, why you're a comedian and he's the Labour right. Party. Yeah. Well, he's a comedian of a different sort. He's, he's, <laughs> he's, he's, he's sort of taken this to Parliament, his act. Um, <laughs> <laughs> that curry must have been difficult, sitting there with David and all the team. Um, yeah, it's not an experience I'd like to go through again. Was there any sort of sense of, oh, well, you know, maybe next time, or was it just, for fuck's sake? <laughs> uh, honestly, David's reaction to it enhanced them rather than diminished them in the sense that at exactly that point you can describe and imagine what it would have been open for David to see and the, the, the faultless dignity and grace with which he conducted himself in circumstances that most of us would not want to play out on the national stage ever. Um, yeah, I, I, he's a good friend and he still is and how he conducted himself in the circumstances of defeat. Absolutely. Well. It was very impressive the way he sort of they dealt with the defeat and then headed straight to New York. It was really, uh, <laughs> really a mark of the man. Um, looking ahead to this election now, I mean, it's, it's, it must be very exciting to be in the... I mean, to be a Labour MP of any rank must be, you know, a really exciting time to potentially be on the verge of, of taking the keys to Downing Street one way or the other. But to be in the situation you're in where you're ultimately almost in charge of the campaign mm. must be thrilling personally. Or isn't it? <laughs> Listen, you you feel an immense sense of responsibility because this is not, this is not a small thing. You know, that night the leadership result came through, we just left office with 29% of the vote, worst share of the vote in 60 years. If you'd said to me, either if David had won or if Ed had won, you'll be 70 days away from the next general election. There won't be a sophologist in the country who can call the result, but everybody thinks this is a winnable election for Labour. I would have bitten your hand off. And in that sense, most, uh, the first national election I was involved in was 1992. In most of the last 20 years, despite all of the effort and the lack of sleep and the thought and everything else, most people have had a pretty clear sense as to what the outcome of the general election is going to be 70 days out. Genuinely, nobody knows the outcome of this election. And in that sense, you think the next 70 days are going to really matter in a way that even in some previous elections, of course, things happen in campaigns, but at some level, the tram lines are set. It doesn't feel like that this time. Isn't that, a, in, a, in a sad way, though, a reflection of the public's apathy towards politics, is that the fact that Labour are in a position to win is just because none of the other parties have really inspired people either? Like, there doesn't really seem to be a great appetite for one particular party or leader at the moment. Um, well, politics is comparative in the sense that you don't get to choose either the time in which you do your politics or the opponents against whom you... you practice your politics. And in that sense, if you're saying, does David Cameron fail to inspire the British public? Yeah, I think he does. Um, I think, that, I mean, the paradox of Cameron is this. He, he looks comfortable in the role in the sense he believes he's entitled to be Prime Minister. Um, but, but he's quite a hollow man in some ways. I don't mean that in a cheap, disparaging way. I just mean 
I genuinely, somebody said to me he would sooner get a tattoo than get a political philosophy, David Cameron. And I think that's it's quite a good description. I don't think he ever intended to get where he's found himself on the Europe question. But he's just been driven there by the weakness that he has within the party, the fact that the party's becoming ever more Eurosceptic. But in that sense, yeah, listen, I, I, I welcome the fact that Cameron has, his appeal has diminished rather than broadened in this parliament, because that creates opportunities for Labour to prevail. But then if Cameron is as you describe him, and that's how people feel about him, why isn't Anne Miliband able to take him out? Partly, we carry with us a legacy of having been in office at the time of the financial crisis. The financial crisis trashed people's confidence in the powerful, not just in bankers and regulators, but in politicians as well. And I think, listen, we're not just battling the Conservatives, we are battling a cynicism that says, you're all the same, nothing will change. If voting changed anything, they'd abolish it. And one of the reasons we saw the turnout that we did in Scotland last September, 85%, was that campaign exploded two myths that imprison politics today. One is that you're all the same because transparently there was a big binary choice. And secondly, voting doesn't matter. Everybody knew, for good or ill, the choice that Scotland was going to make on September the 18th was of massive historical consequence. And in that sense, you know, of course, all the political parties are affected by the sense of sense of economic dislocation, people feel they're working harder but falling behind, but in some level that's quite familiar territory for politicians, albeit that you know it's it's relatively new over the last decade. But but what is new is the depth of political alienation as well. And it's like political alienation and economic dislocation is is simultaneously bearing down on how politics has been done in the past. But Labour instinctively should be the party, shouldn't it, that, uh, that understands the people, that understands certainly working class people and people on lower incomes, and it, it feels at the moment somehow that Labour is failing to resonate with those heartlands on some level. Well, I think, listen, we've all seen over the last century a politics in Britain defined by ideology, left-right, based on organisation of industrial society, collectivism, individualism, left-right. The deeper question that people are asking today, it seems to me, are not exclusively about economic interests, are you for the many, are you for the few, it's also about insecurity. You know, a lot of people today are asking, is globalisation a good thing for my community or not? They don't trust that any politician can control some of the biggest forces that affect their lives. Um, and at the same time, we see the rise of identity politics. You know, I talked to a guy in my constituency last week, he was voting SNP, and what he said was this, he said, um, he said, I hated the Tories. He said, I voted for you guys in 1997. He said, you didn't do everything I wanted. I decided to vote yes, and you guys stopped me getting it. Now, at some level, he had both given up on party politics as a vehicle for his hopes for himself and for his community, but he'd also invested in national identity as, that, as the new vehicle and vessel for his hopes and dreams. And I think one of the challenges for us as politicians is how do we win back people's confidence that there's a connection between how you vote and how your life is afterwards? And what do you think the answer is? I think it's a combination of a really difficult balance of credibility and change. If you give a Natalie Bennett interview, then they believe you want change, but they don't vote for you because they don't trust you're able to run things. And in that sense, that vital equilibrium of credibility and change is the elusive but vital ingredient for every opposition. When I think about opposition, and you have to think about it when you're in it, I kind of think there's three challenges. One is amplify people's and mirror people's sense of grievance. 
because if people don't want to get rid of the government, they're not going to vote for the opposition. Actually, the government's done quite a good job of that themselves. Amplify grievance. Secondly, build your own credibility, because if people just think you're a party of anger and not answers that will make their life better, they're not going to vote for you. And thirdly, be a vessel for people's hopes. And in some ways, the third of those is the most difficult in as cynical an era as we're living through today about whether politics can change anything. That's it's the third bit I feel is missing from all the major parties at the moment. I understand why everyone's got bogged down in the deficit and the debt, and it's important that those things are paid down and dealt with, and I think everyone understands yeah. that. And what the Tories have been very good at is framing the deficit in terms of public sector cuts, and I don't think Labour really has been effective at mm-hmm. having a counter-narrative to that. But on top of that, Talk about the future. What sort of jobs do we want here? What sort of country do we all want to live in? And I just feel, since Blair, really, mm-hmm. no party leader has really captured, even for a, a year, that sort of spirit of, this is an amazing country. Let's do amazing things. Um, listen, we can always do better as politicians, but leadership involves people following leaders as well. Tony's a good friend of mine, but you know, what I hear most on the doorstep in Paisley is no discussions of Iraq or public service reform in 2005 or anything else. People say the guy was never a socialist. You know, look at his lifestyle now. That in that sense, we face challenges all the time in being judged worthy of carrying their dreams. And a lot of people I meet feel that they invested those hopes and dreams in Labour in 97. And while some people are willing to say, listen, the health service got massively better, you know, we were able to introduce a minimum wage or Parliament for Scotland, Welsh Assembly, a lot of other people just switch off. Well, is, there a, is it fair to say this now, that, that politics and economics have merged in this country and that the dividing lines between the parties are so subtle now that I, sometimes I sit there and think, well, the Tories haven't got everything wrong. So even though, you know, I, I would still count myself as a Labour supporter, I, I, I struggle sometimes. I disagree with the bedroom tax, I disagree with some of the changes to welfare, but broadly, you have to say, for most people, mm-hmm. has Britain been a radically different place in this Parliament for David Cameron being Prime Minister, or would Gordon Brown have been massively, massively different to this? Well, I have little sympathy for people who say, listen, let's go back to the politics in the 1980s, where there were real divisions between the parties, and Labour Party conferences were great fun. I mean... You know, Neil Kinnock used to say, if you want entertainment, go to the circus. That's not the job of the Labour Party conference, to provide entertainment for a losing political party. A much better test for me is an erstwhile colleague, Brian Wilson, who used to say, the real test for a Labour Party conference is if somebody walking outside the Labour Party conference saw what was happening inside the Labour Party conference, would it make them more likely or less likely to vote for the Labour Party? And in that sense, you know, as I say, my experience of the Labour Party was there was great strum and drang and controversy in the 1980s, but we lost mm. and we kept losing and we couldn't protect the communities that we came into politics to serve because we were up against an opposition or a political party in the Conservative Party that was better resourced, uh, better able to set the terms of public debate. And in that sense, politics is not about changing governments, it's about changing lives. And ultimately, it's about power and a battle for power consistent with your ethics and your values but if you lose sight of that and just think it's a branch of entertainment then the chances are that the left will keep losing (laughs) (laughs) sometimes Um, but what's the challenge for you then in terms of planning an election campaign in an era where it does feel like the dividing lines are more subtle where they're not as clear I mean that presents a unique challenge to you doesn't it 
I think it is a challenge. It was what I was talking to. ITV brought all of the regional um, uh, broadcasters from ITV together in London yesterday, and I did a presentation, and apparently Grant Chaps did a presentation immediately before me. <laughs> One of the things I said was, listen, when a journalist said to me in the question session, listen, that's all very interesting, what you're doing in the general election, but can you tell us what are you planning for the night of May the 7th and what's going to happen on May the 8th? So, I mean, I said, no, I'm not going to tell you because actually I'm less interested in the post-match analysis than in how to win the game. And in that sense, one of the things that worries me about this general election is so many journalists already think the real story is what happens the day after the election. And they kind of think, listen, this is a bit like a wet football match in February, Labour and the Tories slugging it out. Every so often people will wander off from that pitch and watch the Greens and UKIP and the SNP on the pitch next door. But that's not really the issue. The issue is what happens afterwards. If we succumb to that mindset as politicians and as journalists, I think it will only alienate people further. So part of our challenge is both in terms of our policy, our events, what we're doing, how do we try and invest energy and interest in, in the campaign and the message that we want to communicate? So what, do you have, do you have, can you tell us what some of the plans are that there to, to get people interested? A, a fun run? <laughs> a pink bus. A pink bus. A pink bus. <laughs> yeah, good idea, yeah, drive the pink bus, bus around. Yep, um, you should ask Harriet about the pink bus. Uh, yeah, listen, I'd wait and see, but we've got quite a lot of work underway to try and make it somewhat different from what it's been in the past. Um, I'll, I'll open the floor to questions just to this one, but one of the things that people say is, you know, actually this isn't about the political divide between the two parties, this is also about weak leadership. You know, if Labour had a really strong leader, Labour itself would be further ahead now. Do you think there's any truth in that? I think it's a very tough time to be a political leader, and in that sense I've never tended to support the great man theory of history because they were predominantly men. I think that actually why did we win three general elections? Tony Blair was a very talented politician, but, but it wasn't so much his personality as also that we had a political project that was of its time and relevant. And the essence of being a moderniser in the mid-1990s was that while our values were timeless, we needed to change to keep up with the times. And so in that sense, that argument within the Labour family is often a form of ancestor worship. And to be honest, you don't win by ancestor worship. You win by... Well, the, you know, our manifesto in 1945 was called Let Us Face the Future. And Bill Clinton, who I've mentioned already, you know, when he came and spoke at that Labour Party conference, he says, Labour has to be in the future business. And ultimately, while there are lessons that we can draw from the past and from past leaders, the ultimate challenge for the Labour Party is always prospective. So the word future may well feature in the campaign. Will it, do you know what the title yep. of the manifesto is going to be? Yet? Yep. Can you tell us? Nope. <laughs> what? The future might be there. So future might be in it. Uh, Britain. <laughs> <laughs> so um, Britain's future or future? Do you think so? The future so. business of Britain. Now listen, the, the truth is, I, I was involved in the 2010 campaign, as you know, and the Labour phrase was a future fair for all. Now, yeah. I don't think I met many humans who ever said a future fair for all. <laughs> and in that sense, part of the task we've set for ourselves is to come up with um, language that actually people would use. And, and uh, you know, when you said time for a change, I immediately thought back to 1992. That was Kinnock's phrase in 92. But some of the best language that was used in 1997 was, was literally mirroring back what the public were seeing. That was part of Philip Gould's genius, you know, enough is enough. Yeah. Um, in that sense, that was what people were seeing in 1997. Um, and in that sense, I think it will be rather more colloquial than it's been in the past. So it'll be quite chatty. 
Hey guys, vote Labour for Britain's future, yeah? <laughs> That's chatty. Uh, well, well, more chatty than. Uh, well, I reckon. Will it be along the lines of like securing Britain's future or building Britain's, building Britain's future? No. Something like that, right? Okay, let's have the floor to questions. We've got a roving mic, so I'll try and sweep across the room from this side to that side. I won't be able to get everyone in, but if we take the chap at the front, if you just wait for Tris to come around with the mic, if you let us know your name as well and speak clearly, and then we, for the benefit of the tape, uh, we can. Uh, yeah, all the citrus are just coming around now, so... Yeah, so... There we go, sorry about that, mate. Lovely, thank you. Very simple question, what's going to happen in Scotland? Uh, Politically, or the weather, or...? <laughs> <laughs> Highs of four, lows of minus two. Uh, in terms of Scotland, listen, we face a challenge. We're behind in the opinion polls at the moment. And the conventional political answer was to say, just to start short, the only poll that matters is going to be, we've taken a different approach and said, absolutely, we're behind and we've got to um, put points on the board, otherwise we're going to lose seats. Why are we behind? In as kind of cynical an era towards politics, the referendum was a, a seismic event. It was the biggest political event in decades in Scotland in most of our political lives. Jack Straw actually texted me on the morning of the referendum and he said, it seems to me like these are all nine of my general-election campaigns rolled into one. And that's, that's a really good description of what it felt like in Scotland. Now, in that sense, in as anti-political an era, most people, because they're getting on with their lives and doing other things, think about the electoral contest that they've been involved in until they're obliged to think about the next electoral contest. And right now, quite a section of the Scottish electorate are thinking more about relitigating the referendum than thinking about who they want to be the government of the country in the next five years. And so in that sense, what's our challenge? Our challenge is to tell one very basic truth that sits below the numbers that we're looking at just now, which is every one less Labour MP in Scotland makes it more likely that the Conservatives are the largest party. And the party with the largest number of MPs for the last hundred years has formed the government. Now, my sense is most people in Scotland won't change. The change that they most want is to get rid of this Conservative Liberal Coalition. Our challenge is to convince people that if you want a Labour government, the way you get a Labour government is to vote for Labour. But there's also a danger in that, isn't there, where Labour have alienated people in Scotland because they were perceived to be in bed with the Tories over the referendum, which, again, is a narrative that I don't really feel that Labour has pushed back on effectively enough north of the border, is that if Labour goes there saying, oh, well, if you vote for them, you get the Tories, people turn around and say... You are the Tories, mate. You know, but there's up in people's heads up there. I've got friends who, who, who live there, and it's almost like they, they see Labour like the Tories now. Um, constitutional politics makes strange bedfellows of all political parties. You know, you have Brian Souter and Tommy Sheridan in the same movement for yes. That's a pretty strange movement. Um, so in that sense, uh, I think there's a... I don't think we make ourselves more substantial politicians by pretending there is disagreement where there is not disagreement. And from very different political perspectives, it is possible for politicians to agree on specific issues. And in that sense, is it sensible to pretend that the Conservatives, much as I disagree with them, want the country to break up? Or is it sensible to acknowledge the fact that actually we believe in pulling and sharing resources, that's why we believe in the United Kingdom, the Tories take a different view? I mean, listen, the truth is, that's a charge that the SNP level against us. My sense is it's actually a different argument we need to win, which is a prospective argument about who can make the biggest difference to the lives of people in the community that we represent. OK, and on the same table, very lucky indeed. Uh, my name's Rachel. Uh, I really enjoy a dour Scott, and I've really enjoyed listening to you. But my question is... Whoa, whoa. No, that sounded no, like I mean, a compliment. Not dour. No, I, but 
that's a compliment. Thank you. A dower, <laughs> a dower, thoughtful Scott. I enjoy that. Uh, but my question is actually to Matt. Are you actually wearing socks which say Matthew? Oh, shit. Yeah. <laughs> yes, I am, yeah. Um, I could have given you a politician's answer there. I'm, I'm, I'm hanging it's my not about the socks. I think most people in this country actually care about the economy, frankly. Um, <laughs> and why I haven't got new socks. Uh, right, anyone else down here? Yes, Can I ask why do you have socks with your name on them? Well, it'd be weird if I had someone else's. What <laughs> <laughs> if I had Douglas on? <laughs> I got them as a gift and they were just the socks I put on this morning. I mean, surely people have seen socks with writing on before. <laughs> this is London. You don't know. I know, I just, well, they, they were just a pair of... I've never felt so self-conscious about my socks. But <laughs> why do people always ask men about what they're wearing, eh, instead of women? Crikey, <laughs> 21st century, guys. What is this, the red carpet? Uh, hi, hi, Douglas. Um, I was wondering, what, what do you think is the defining characteristic of Ed that makes him a better leader than for the Labour Party than David would have been? Um, listen, I'm not, I'm not going to play that game. And I, I mean that genuinely... Partly because we're 70 days away from a generation. I'm more focused on the generation than the last leadership contest. But also, I'm not going to resile from the judgment I made about David, who's a friend of mine, and suddenly, because Ed becomes leader, say that I was wrong or that this was right. Listen, that's not who I am. OK, anyone else sort of down here? Yep, chap at the back. If we could ask so one-sentence questions or one-sentence answers, because I'm keen to get around as many as possible, please. Thank you. In a changing geopolitical environment, do you think... Oh, yeah, here we go. Uh, do you think current politics is too reactionary? I'm thinking of Dispatch's documentary or bad interviews on LDC. Um, listen, politicians who complain about the media are a bit like sailors who complain about the sea. In that sense, I, I don't think it, it benefits us to spend a lot of time complaining about how politics is covered. But I do worry about the smallness of our politics relative to the challenges that politics has to try and address. You know, if you... Take the example of foreign policy. If you were to read most British newspapers, people would think foreign policy was entirely about the reach of Brussels and periodic crises in the Middle East and elsewhere. My honest sense is the generational challenge for me and actually for my kids' generation is the rise of Beijing more than it is the reach of Brussels. But that, there's a complete imbalance there in the sense that very little coverage in the papers focuses on the suggestion that we're in the early part of the Asian century, that actually, geopolitically, that's where many of the greatest risks are in terms of future prosperity. It's where a great deal of opportunity is. That, that often I do feel there's quite a profound imbalance between our public conversation and the public policy challenges that actually we should be focused on. Do you think there's a danger in the future of a, effectively a new Cold War with China? Um, I don't think China sees itself in an expansion, as an expansionary nation or ideology in the way that communist Russia did. On the other hand, I think a better analogy would be a kind of mercantilist approach. If you look at the Ring of Pearls around India and the South China Sea, there is no doubt they're trying to assert a sphere of influence, but they're doing so based on what is a very distinctively Chinese characteristic, which is they are essentially an inward-looking more than they are an outward-looking nation. The Chinese Communist Party is haunted by the need for internal stability and order. And in that sense, to understand their foreign policy, you have to understand that, for example, the foreign ministry has never been a particularly senior ministry within the, foreign, the Chinese government because most of the concern and most of the bandwidth has been spent looking inwards rather than looking outwards. Now, in that sense, China is a rising power. There's going to be huge challenges 
in the future. But no, I don't think it's inevitable there's going to be a, a Cold War in the manner that we saw in the second half of the 20th century. Maybe not in the military sense, but do you think in an ideological and economic sense that effectively as, as uh, capitalism defeated communism, because frankly daily life for most people is better under capitalism, there will be a, a, effectively a sort of choice of two ways of life in that regard? Well, I think probably post-financial crisis, certainly, um, the idea of, of kind of liberal capitalism being the inevitable choice of countries around the world is deeply contested. And actually, there is a big battle underway in terms of state capitalism as represented by China and a, a more liberal form of Anglo-Saxon capitalism. And it's far from clear in terms of where individual countries will position themselves in that spectrum. OK. Uh, any more questions on this subject? Quite a few, yeah. Let's take, uh, so let's take three quickly there, and then that's faster. So if you pass the mic on, ask three questions in quick succession. That's all right. Thank you. Hi. Um, Hello. Do you think that um, the leaders' debates will happen with all the leaders there? And if not, why do you think? What the, do you think the real reason is that they won't be there? Um, I, I hope so. Um, we've said that we're ready, willing, and able to take part in television debates. I worry that actually Linton Crosby made a judgment some time ago that he doesn't want these television debates for a few reasons. First of all. Um, they start with a lot more money than Labour, and they start with a lot more media support. So they don't want to imperil those advantages by the equivalence that television debates affords the opposition. Secondly, they've tested it, and if they were half as confident as to the leadership offer that David Cameron's making relative to Ed Miliband, they would welcome the television debates, but they're not. And that's partly because in terms of the research they've done, they are worried that Ed will actually um, beat Cameron. And genuinely, I, I, I believe that to be the case. Thirdly, that's, that's not unusual. If you look at American presidential debates, almost universally, the insurgent beats the incumbent in the first television debate in most presidential cycles since 1960. Um, and in that sense, um, I think they've thought they don't want to take the risk. And they think that they can, with their hedge funds backers, buy the election without the risk of people having a job interview in front of the British public. Okay, next question along. Was there someone else just there? To, there? Uh, just to return to the previous answer that you gave in, in relation to foreign policy, how, how do you effectively combat a hybrid war as, as we've sort of seen labelled the, the sort of strategy that perhaps Putin is putting forward and people are saying perhaps the Chinese start to follow afterwards? Mm. It's a really important and frankly pressing question. I think let's start with what actually Russia is doing. You know, Putin's reading of history tells him that not only Hitler and Napoleon, but the Swedes, Lithuanians and others have always invaded Russia. And his objective, as far as I can tell, is to establish a post-Warsaw Pact buffer zone um, of weak um, countries that will be a protection for Mother Russia. And in that sense, what he's doing in the eastern Donbass and eastern Ukraine is not eccentric or out of kilter with what else he's planning and has done previously, it's entirely consistent with what he's done in Georgia and South Ossetia, what he would plan to do elsewhere. And in that sense, while we have formally Article 5 of the NATO Charter, which guarantees the integrity of the Defence Alliance and includes, of course, the Baltic countries, the truth is Article 5 doesn't protect you from internal subversion as distinct from external invasion. And we need, therefore, to be smart in saying he is running a strategy that involves the manipulation of Russian minorities, offensive cyber capability, 
uh, where he can through proxies, buying infrastructure, buying media outlets. And we need to match, if you like, a, a multifactorial strategy by Putin with a multifactorial strategy by the West. But you're right, this is a different kind of... It's a, it's a 19th century battle for influence using 21st century technology. And in that sense, I think a lot of people didn't realise early enough quite how chronic this challenge is that's represented by Putin in an acute form in relation to Ukraine. Your opposite member, Michael Fallon, says that Russia uh, poses a greater threat to our security than ISIS. Do you think that's the case? Listen, I think Michael Fallon has a growing habit of um, shooting from the lips. You know, I mean, he, uh, I wish he was as effective at securing, you know... Uh, Britain's interest as he seems to be in securing headlines. Uh, he's not my lodestar or guide in terms of the geopolitical challenges Britain faces. The truth is, ISIS does pose a profound existential threat to the Middle East, and if it remains unchallenged, I think will present a very real and genuine threat to the international order, not just in the Middle East. The character of the challenge that Russia represents is fundamentally different, and I'm not sure the kind of... Um, headline-grabbing approach that we've seen from Fallon is actually very helpful in understanding how to deal with either of them. You sound quite chilled out about it. Like, and I don't mean the, the, like, in a flippant way, but like, I think if you were Foreign Secretary just saying that, just saying, oh, well, it's just the two separate challenges. I, I think people just think, he's cool about this. I don't think there's anything to worry about. I'm going to go and eat a bag of chips <laughs> because Douglas Alexander's got this all under control. Like, it, feels like you're just, it feels like you're more philosophical about it than the government's been. William Hague used to say that there are um, two kind of dispositions for the Conservative Party. There is complacency and panic. That was what he said after he was left the leadership of the Tory party. I don't think panic is a particularly becoming attribute in either ministers or prospective ministers. And the truth is, as Foreign Secretary or as a, somebody who aspires to hold that office, you need both an analysis and, 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 a, and an understanding of the issues, but also the humility to recognise that large parts of foreign affairs are driven by events. And in that sense, to exercise your judgement effectively requires a lot of thought and a lot of consideration. And one of the reasons I love the job as Shadow Foreign Secretary, although I'd much prefer the, to lose the shadow from the title, is because it's a licence to learn. You know, it is, it is an opportunity to inform yourself and to learn during an enforced period of opposition to equip yourself. So listen, I'm, I'm far from chilled out and complacent, but, but I, I hope I've been able to use the time in opposition to inform myself in a way that means we could um, make a better job. Go blast the president the hell out Go get him. No, I think that's, that's, that's more a Kenny Everett kind of Ronald Reagan approach to dealing with Russia than me, thanks very much. Uh, any questions on the balcony? Just yell at the rocks, I can't see. Yes, the gentleman there. Do you just want to yell it out? After the election, how likely are we to have a Scottish Deputy Prime Minister? How likely are we after the election to have a Scottish Deputy Prime Minister, potentially Alex Salmond? Um, well, are you rubbing your eyes because the, the lights no, are... No, no, I was just trying, to, I was trying to see the gentleman. Um, listen, honestly, Alex Salmond has spent his life committed to securing independence for Scotland. And when, by a clear margin, he lost that referendum on September the 18th, I don't think he gave up the aspiration of Scottish independence. I honestly believe he believes the most propitious circumstances to pursue his goal of independence 
is not a Labour government, but it's a Tory government. He thinks if we get a Tory government, we get a referendum by 2017 on Europe. At that point, if the Conservatives have been re-elected, I can go back to the Scottish people and say you've got years of austerity and the prospect of being part of Little England rather than the United Kingdom. And he thinks that will be a winning formula. And in that sense, I would take with a very large barrel of salt any suggestion that Alex Hammond is in any way serious about working with, supporting or wanting a Labour government. Uh, well, that, I think that was that another hand? No, I think that's it. It brings us to the end. Um, oh, yes. I'll tell you what, because I was going to ask about the pink van. So it's right that we have, uh, it's right that we end on a female question. I hope at some I level... No, I wasn't going to the pink van. Um, okay. What issue do you think might win you or possibly lose you the election? Mm. Um, that's a good question. <laughs> I think the issue, um, I'll give you two answers, honestly. The issue that is at the top of most voters' concerns, all the polling evidence suggests, is the National Health Service. And I think there is a growing sense in the country that the Health Service, as we know it, won't survive another five years of the Conservatives. And in that sense, um, I think Cameron knows he's got a problem. I think um, they made a massive strategic error with their autumn statement where Osborne committed himself to a surplus that means he would take spending levels back to the 1930s when we didn't have a National Health Service. Um, and in that sense, if I had to identify an issue, I would think we are on very strong ground and they're on very weak ground in relation to the National Health Service. But I think sitting beneath any individual issue, be it the health service or living standards or all the other issues we'll talk about, is a pretty profound fundamental philosophical difference between the parties which is that at a deep fundamental level, the Conservatives believe the way that Britain succeeds is to look after the people at the top. And if you look after the and it's a genuine philosophical disagreement, it's not because they're bad people, they're just in hoc to a bad idea. They think if we look after the people at the top, everybody else will do fine. And that is fundamentally different from a Labour point of view, which says if working people do well, Britain does well. And in that sense, I think how that argument plays out about what kind of country we are and what kind of country we want to become in the future, I think is going to be one of the most defining arguments of the coming 70 days. So the slogan's probably going to be building Britain's <laughs> NHS and fairness for the economy or something like that. Yeah, um, keep the day job. Something like that. Uh, Douglas, it's been an absolute pleasure. Um, ladies and gentlemen, uh, first before we end, a uh, big round of applause for the staff here at the St James Theatre and at Avalon who've made it possible. We've got a whole host of guests. Uh, there's two pencilled in for March and June. I'm very excited about that. I can't yet announce, but check. Uh, well, I can't yet because I haven't, haven't fully confirmed, have they? So I can't. Um, uh, I'll let you know during the campaign uh, what the uh, what the guests are. Uh, I've basically done Natalie Bennett here. I've screwed myself. Uh, <laughs> now I'm launching. I'm launching the new season, but I just can't tell you about it. Um, so follow me on Twitter, and I'll let you know who they are. Um, but for now, the next one is on uh, Wednesday, the 25th of March. For now, please. Uh, Massive reception for the wonderful Douglas Alexander. Well, there you go, Douglas Alexander. Just that bit at the end where that final question about the differences between Labour and the Conservatives and just the, the neat way in which he sums it up. Now, I don't necessarily agree with uh, how he's characterised the two parties there, but just to be able to do that quickly. And there was something about it on the night. He was leaning forward at that point. And he just caught the light, because it's quite a dark room. It's sort of low-lit. It really lends itself, the studio bar there, to a, um, uh, 
to a political night. It sort of adds to the intrigue of it. But he just caught the light a different way when he leant forward and it, it did feel oddly quite cinematic without sounding too dramatic about it. But he was wonderful uh, and a great advert for politics. And you just... So I wish that he was more visible, Douglas Alexander, because he is a very likeable bloke. And equally, with a lot of politicians, you think... You, I would like to see him like that more often on TV, but I think the nature of modern media means that politicians don't often get that sort of hearing. So um, if you'd like to come down to one of the shows, there is a special atmosphere there on the night. Uh, and to all of you that have been before, thank you. And obviously, thank you for downloading this. Uh, tickets for the next one are available on the website, stjamestheatre.co.uk. I always announce the guests as soon as I know on Twitter, so you can follow me there, at Matt Ford. Um, but for now, until next month, of course... Just to remind you, it's uh, David Lammy, the MP for Tottenham, uh, and potential future London Mayor. He's one of the bookies' favourites. Um, so I can't wait to chat to him. And then, as I say, there's a f- few guests that are currently pencilled in that I hope to be able to confirm very, very soon. Thanks so much. ta Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.